Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. That's 27,000? That's, that's about not. 10%. Ooh, wow, you're really going out on no, the ledge. Really, wow. Come on. Can I go more average, than that? Average market returns for next year. say if you're going to forecast well, you have to forecast often. Now, my team and I, our approach is to forecast the trend, not necessarily the number. However, even that alone is extremely difficult. We would argue that forecasting is an impossible task in that you don't have enough data. Or in fact, we can argue that we have too much data that can sway arguments in one direction or the other. After all, it is what makes a market, buyers and sellers coming to the table One believing things are going to go in one direction, the other believing things are going to go in the other direction. Well, in this episode of Investments Unplugged, we are going to present our fearless forecasts for 2020. These aren't necessarily backed by significant data, nor are they entirely believed by the team. However, we believe that it will be enough to spur conversation amongst ourselves and hopefully amongst our listeners out there. So to hear a little bit more about our fearless forecast, listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. Welcome to Investments Unplugged. I'm your host, Chief Investment Strategist at Manulife Investment Management, Philip Peterson. Joining me today is Akania and Kevin Headland. <laughs> Welcome, gentlemen, to Investments Unplugged yet again. Today, it's going to be all about our fearless forecast. Now, Kevin, if you recall, we did this a number of years ago where we wrote up a piece just before the new year, which was a little bit more in celebrating the spirit of the holidays, where we threw out some outlandish forecasts for the coming year um, that were plausible, but not entirely probable. Uh, But, you know, it does create some conversation that gets us thinking about what could be, what might not be, and what might need to happen in order to see these things realized. So that's what we're going to do today. But before we get to our fearless forecast, we got to get to what you need to know. Kevin, why don't we start with you? What is your what you need to know? All right, my what you need to know today is uh, as we get, uh, I guess, past the Canadian election and look forward to the U.S. election, a lot of uh, our clients and advisors start uh, talking about the markets in the year of an election, especially in the U.S. and how the market reacts in the U.S. Um, And surprisingly, actually, uh, I think a lot of people would expect that markets prefer a Republican president over a Democrat president as Republicans seem to be more business friendly. Uh, but actually, in, in reality, the markets have preferred a Democrat president over a Republican president to the tune of 10% return. And this is going back since 1945. One of the reasons I think that Republicans have underperformed, shall we say, Democrat presidents uh, since 1945 is the worst years of performance actually have come under a Republican president. You actually have the worst six years of performance all under Republican presidents, three of them under George Bush Jr., uh, being 2001, 2002, and the worst year, of course, 2008. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes timing is everything and has nothing to do with the president. Perhaps the, it is the uh, result of what's going on around the president and the fundamentals and not just the market. 
But going forward, I think the idea is that uh, although people would perhaps expect more, maybe some volatility or uh, some problems leading to the uh, next year as we get to an election cycle, the last year of the first term is not necessarily that bad in performance. On average, it's uh, below uh, right around uh, 4%. And at the end, the eighth year is actually the worst year of the presidential cycle. So I would expect that the uh, returns to come out marginally uh, uh, normal, uh, but perhaps not just because of the president, but more so the underlying fundamentals. So I would expect a normal year and nothing to do with perhaps uh, the president that is uh, either going to be reelected or changing of a president. Yeah, I'm going to call this a random walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, I think it's it's largely coincidental. I mean, we can try, and it'd be very, very difficult to do this, but, I mean, we could try and attribute some of the weaker performance to policy, uh, some of the strong performance to policy, but I think we were chatting about it the other day, Makan. I think the Democrats, um, and certainly Bill Clinton, were favored with a very, very strong uh, market environment through the back half of the 1990s. In fact, Bill Clinton was the one president that didn't see a recession through either of his two terms. So I think when you take that into consideration, these results can be skewed. It's, it's an interesting question because we get that all the time from advisors saying, hey, what, what is, where are we in the presidential cycle? What does it mean if, if a Republican wins, if a Democratic wins? And we would largely argue not much. You know, I mean, policy can influence the markets. Uh, Obviously, tax cuts can influence the markets as tax increases. Regulatory environment can change and so on. But to base your investment decision on who is in office is to make a mistake. While it is interesting and favorable, and I love pointing out to my Republican uh, relatives that, you know, Democrats enjoy better market returns. And, you know, the best year is when there's a handoff from a Republican president to a Democratic president, when you see an average return of 21%, let's go Democrats and just watch them shrivel up. I think your Republican friends would point out, though, that maybe it was the policies put into place by the Democratic president in the 90s, Bill Clinton, relating to housing that really caused the housing bubble for George W. to deal with, right? So I couldn't agree more with you. I think at the end of the day, it's the fundamentals that drive market returns. and But it's always nice and fun to put blame on politics, I think, in this matter. Especially when it can be so polarizing, and then you often get the question back, but but is it really? <laughs> anyway, moving on. Mock on, you're what you need to know. So my what you need to know relates to seasonality, specifically for this time of year, the months of November and December. We've all heard about the Santa Claus rally. So from the work that we've done, it suggests that we've had an excellent return so far in 2019, And if history is any guide, that is likely to continue for the rest of the year. So we went back and looked at monthly returns for the S&P 500 going back to 1950. So I think it's like 69 years of data. And November, December are the first and third best performing months of the year. So November is number one, average median return since the 50s of 1.8%, followed by January at 1.6, and then followed by December, 1.3. So essentially the November to January stretch of three months is historically the best return profile. Now what sticks out to me is of the 12 months, actually any guesses? You can't look at my sheet, Philip. (laughs) Of the 12 months, how many months actually have a median negative return? In which month? How many months in general? Of the 12 months, a median negative return, I'm going to say two. One. So one's the right answer, which is surprising. I thought it would have been more. 
But September is actually the only month of the year that has seen a negative median return. When you look back at the data, the biggest drawdown in the 73-74 recessionary period was during September. The dot-coms, those three years of horrendous returns, the worst month seemed to be September by chance. And then the last one, I think it was a financial crisis. I saw bad returns in 2007-2008. Now for the November-December, the odds of being positive, and when you look at the data, again, they highlight two of the best or two of the three most favorable months. So December, you are positive basically 75% of the time. November is 68%. So if you use this as a measure, it would suggest that those clients that are waiting for a material pullback during these, uh, these next couple of months to reallocate capital, uh, history would suggest that it's unlikely to happen. And in fact, as I glance over at your sheets, uh, the first, Mark, I do have to say I am a little weepy, uh, but weeping with joy as you are starting to embrace seasonality, which is a technical factor. A... Thank Here you for we that. Go. Yep, you're, you are learning. He can be taught, which is fantastic. But as I look at your sheet, what, is it, what jumps out at me is interesting. The probability of a positive return is strongest in the month of December with November being the third strongest behind it. So you've got two months with very, very strong a propensity for a positive return um, and a higher median return than the prior month. So, yes, uh, Makan, there is a Santa Claus. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, with that, I'm going to say these markets kind of surprise me in that you know, we have hit new highs uh, where we are we, uh, into the first couple of weeks of November. We have seen some new highs on the S&P 500, all in the face of declining earnings, modestly declining earnings, but by our indicators, we would see earnings are going to continue to decline on a year-over-year basis, modestly again, again, not recessionary, but in Q4 and likely Q1. However, I would say what the markets are, are grasping on is the hopes of a trade resolution between the United States and China. Now, that is not my what you need to know. My what you need to know is the Fed. And the Fed in October cut rates one more time, took the upper bound for the Fed funds rate from 2% to 1.75. That's a 75 basis point cut in total if we start in July. Uh, and this, in my view, as I read the statement, as I listened to the press conference, uh, indicated to me that they were done and they're very comfortable with being done for the time being. I think that's a testament to the strength of the U.S. economy, aside from the trade tensions, uh, and I would argue that I think the Fed, not only are they done cutting, that we're probably not going to see a move by the Fed through 2020. Uh, now, it almost sounds like I'm getting into my fearless forecast here. So maybe I, that will be my first one. I don't think the Fed moves at all through the remainder of this year and into next year. Here's the reason why. I don't think we're going to see a recession. And as we get closer to the election, I think the Fed, like other central banks, are going to go quiet, meaning they don't want to be seen as influencing the election one way or another, especially with the views of the current administration with respect to interest rates. I think the Fed wants to be unbiased here and we'll probably see no reason to raise rates and no reason to cut rates. So interest rates overall, first, the Fed funds rate, I think, is going to remain static until the end of 2020. 
and I think that interest rates as a result are going to be in a tight range over the course of the next year and couple months. If we use the 10-year yield as kind of our, our jumping off point, I think the 10-year yield top end of the range, and I'm going to go out and say maybe the top end of the range might be 2%, with the lower end of the range being 1.6 to 1.7. Oh, This is supposed to be fearless forecast. <laughs> like That's like market consensus. <laughs> Oh, no rate cuts or increases. So if you have to choose one or the other, that's got to be fearless. Is the Fed more likely to oh. cut rates two times next year or raise rates two times next year? Oh, Not well, that's, say oh, the come path. on. That's an easy one. You know, I think let's go a little bit further. Is the Fed likely to cut rates three times next year or raise once? Let's do it that way. Let's skew it to the downside. And I would argue uh, what the Fed is more likely to do would be to raise rates once next year then cut two or three times. So that would suggest that I don't see a recession coming. I don't think we're going to see a recession. And I think the Fed um, will have reason. Maybe it's a trade deal. Yeah, maybe it's the best trade deal of all time. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Um, but I think the Fed will have reasons perhaps to uh, normalize the rates more so than cut aggressively. Yeah. Okay. Is that consensus? No, but okay, that's not, Thank you very much. not nothing next year is well, consensus. I could, I could see the opposite there. I could see two or three rate cuts. Uh, you played a scenario where um, the trade deal uh, doesn't work out and gets broken up and you get uh, all of a sudden some weakness in the markets. And, and although the, the Fed doesn't feel they need to raise rates due to their uh, dual mandate of inflation and um, unemployment, but perhaps now the market starts pricing in more and more rate cuts and it kind of forces their hand and you see two more cuts, you know, as they continue their easing policy, they haven't hit the uh, the 60% cuts just yet uh, in, a, in a typical uh, easing cycle. Uh, so I, I could see some more cuts if we continue down the path where we are. Um, maybe not in the near term, but in the back half of next year, two cuts is still, I think, uh, on the two table. Or three. No, it was three to see, verse one. Okay, I can see two or three. Well, let's explain this, Holland, because you said 60% cuts during an easing cycle. Now that's during a recession. Right. So what the Fed normally does during a recession is cuts interest rates by, you know, 60 to 70 percent. Right. Not 60 percent in terms of absolute, but on a relative basis. So going from 10 to three, you know, as an example of a 70 percent reduction in interest rate. That, so you're basically saying your fearless forecast is a recession, a recession. for next year. Or the Fed is so um, uh, proactive, which they've, they've been more proactive this time around this time around than they have typically in, in a normal uh, uh fearful of, of a potential recession uh, and then where the yield curve is right now. Uh, I'm still in the mindset that we avoid a res recession, but if you want to throw a fearless forecast out there, yeah, I could say we hit a recession in the back half of next year. That's aggressive. Three cuts next year I'm saying in, I could into see a, a recession. I'm saying I could see a, a scenario where it plays out. It's Well, that's possible, certainly not, not consensus. Probable. No, <laughs> I would put money on your on Phyllis forecast versus yours. You put you side of him, you mean? Yeah, I'm in the sense oh, yeah. that they'll raise rates once. I would too. I'm saying I'm throwing a fearless forecast okay, here. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, Makan, I'll just point out, it is the end of the year and end of year reviews are coming up. So good on you on agreeing with me. Makan, what is your fearless forecast? So I have two. And if we're really going to get scandalous and dramatic, this is for my friends and our advisor friends out west in beautiful Alberta, Saskatchewan. So... Through our travels, we spent a lot of time with our friends there, and they have a certain political affiliation uh, that is maybe more leaning towards a blue party, i.e. the Conservatives. 
But I think next year is going to be the year that our friends out West are going to embrace Trudeau. And this is on the backs of, and this is a fearless forecast. I think Prime Minister Trudeau has realized that he can't have such a, I don't even know, this is going to go through government relations and probably won't even make the podcast. But he's had a, little, he's had a contentious relationship with Alberta and Saskatchewan. That has resulted for, with him leading from a majority. Kev's laughing over here, so it's already it's been cut. To, well, we, I think we can <laughs> fairly say that Prime Minister Trudeau and the Liberals tend not to poll well in the Western And provinces. that's You can look at the statistics on that. That's a fact. So, But I think he will change his tune, uh, realizing now with a minority government that he has to change his tune if he doesn't want to have another election in a year and a half, which is generally the average length of a minority government. And he will be much more pro-pipeline, uh, and this will be viewed positively by our friends in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So my fearless forecast is, and you know which advisors you are out there, that you will have a very different view of Prime Minister Trudeau than what you've shared with any one of us over the past four years. I will take the opposite side of that for (laughs) sure. Because in a minority government, he has to uh, uh, gather some votes on his side of 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 the aisle and I would expect the votes will be easier to gather from the left-leaning side of the aisle versus the right-leaning side of the aisle. Uh, so I will say that he's going to be, while he wants and perhaps needs the pipeline, he's not going to get the votes, unfortunately, to get it passed. I'm going to go the other side of this. So I, I'm, I'm going to split this because, one— the Green Party that's going <laughs> to— No, first I'm going to say, what was that noise you made? Because I don't think this is very difficult to—it's it's not a fearless forecast at all. I think there's I think the right noise it. is, eh. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So what you said. I don't think it's that hard to see, um, basically, the, this government— try to embrace or, or hold out an olive branch to the uh, to the western provinces and in fact to argue against you Kevin I would say it's very easy to get the votes because I think the opposition party the conservatives are well in favor of it so I think if you propose this they can only vote in favor of it otherwise they're voting against what they've stood for you know through part of the election so I don't know I, I'm just gonna have to sit there that, that's pretty weak on both your parts what oh, yeah. I, will, I will say that, though, it bears watching, and it will be a very interesting um, year to come in the Canadian political environment. As it always is. Okay, so before we go down that rabbit hole and go too far down into politics, I'm going to throw my fearless forecast out there, and I'm going to say, here it is, the S&P 500 hits 4,000 next year. And here's how we get that. So from where we are today, that's roughly a 30%, a little over a 30% gain in the market, and I'm going to justify it this way. Again, we don't see enough forces of recession out there to say that the recessionary risks are meaningful, meaning greater than 50%. Therefore, I also believe that this administration, as we head into an election year, wants to get a deal done with China in order to campaign on something. I think the deal might be fairly benign. I don't think it's going to be very aggressive at all in terms of rollbacks of anything that the Chinese economy has put in place over the last number of years. I think it might even be soft on intellectual property. I think it's just going to be a deal, and that's it. And with the fact that the uh, credit markets continue to be favorable, the consumer continues to be in great shape, you solve this trade problem, this manufacturing problem. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand out there. Manufacturing recovers, earnings recover in a meaningful way, uh, and valuation nudges a little bit higher uh, because the Fed, back to my first point, doesn't do anything through 2020 all of a sudden, you get a PE expansion, you get earnings growth, and yeah, 30% gain. 
low probability, but certainly plausible. So you've looked at this, and in your environment, so you're talking about uh, recovery manufacturing, recovery in the global trade, inflation expectations increasing because of that, potentially, not materially, and you think the Fed is going to sit on the sidelines and not increase rates. That's my fearless forecast. <laughs> Where it in reality, real- they exactly. would probably raise rates and well, then you would get a multiple contraction. But he, but, did, he did say you get a rate, uh, you know, possible for one rate increase. So there you go. if the markets aren't pricing this in as they're not today, and we saw, and many of us remember what happened in Q4 of last year, it was you got that 20% sell-off because some of it was global trade was slowing, blah, blah, blah. But it was a change in expectations of the Fed of how much they're going to raise rates. So I don't know. I, oh, uh, that's my 2021 fearless forecast. <laughs> <laughs> We're only talking about 2020 right now, not 2021. Uh, but, now, you, you could see it if you, also if you think about um, you know election cycles and maybe there's a, another tax cut on the table and maybe that helps earnings growth artificially for a year. You know, there's potential. I would say 30 percent is aggressive, but very. Uh, um, but it's fearless market, forecast. A market, a market friendly environment especially politically uh and if you do get a trade deal that's very uh, you might get a, a additional climb you think about the climate's done this year on the back of not great fundamentals if you get fundamentals turning could it just keep climbing the, this not even wall of worry but it seems continues to be a, a wall of opportunity well I, that's the tail risk and that's the tail risk i think the the larger probability the greater probability is we muddle through yeah, hopefully things improve. Hopefully they don't get worse. But you know, that improvement is still going to take a while to, to come to fruition, which I think is going to be into 2020. So, yeah, I think you know, while it's not my base case, it is my upper tail risk. That is the fearless forecast that, yeah, you know what? We get the greatest deal of all time and things take off and you get the S&P 500 cracking that 4,000 barrier. I would love for that to happen. We'd all love I for that to happen. I think we would all love for it to happen. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone that doesn't want it to happen. Well, unless maybe. you're 80% bond. Unless yeah. you're 80% bond, short stocks, and long duration. Yeah. Yeah. What about the other side and say, you know, we don't get the greatest trade deal ever. Um, it falls apart uh, on whatever news or noise or uh, speculation, um, and it drives the U.S. Uh, into a recession. And then we're down 20 30% in that environment um, now, on the upside, that's a reset opportunity for those who want to reload back in the markets. But uh, we keep saying perhaps we muddle through and get no recession, but we're, you know, we're skating on that proverbial thin ice, and I don't think it takes much to crack it eventually when your economy is slowing. We could see ourselves in recession, and all this um, you know, uh, excitement or, or, or uh, positive on the market right now, we've been climbing this wall of worry, turns and just – takes an about face and drops precipitously and we get a, a worse type of return than we did uh, fourth quarter of 2018. Certainly possible. So let me put it this way. Just let's do a quick little poll here. Kevin, If, if uh, so here are the two options. What is more plausible? Uh, a uh, recovery, trade deal recovery and a 30% upside, trade failure, continued weakening, if not a recession and a 30% downside. Which way are you, would you lean? Let me get my coin out and flip it. Oh, so you're saying it's 50-50? I don't, I, I'm a natural optimist, so I will say upside 30%. Um, but there's a wild card, and you don't, it never comes through. And I, I think 
Um, you know, obviously President Trump wants a trade deal, uh, you know, to come through as, as kind of his uh, backbone of his re-election campaign. Uh, but at the same time, he can also campaign and say, you know, if we don't get the best deal or a deal that he wants, he can campaign on the fact that we're not uh, bending knee um, and we are going to uh, fight for the American worker and not get a trade deal done. And that could be not necessarily a positive news. So there we have a very wishy-washy That's answer. That's such Mark. a Kevin yeah. response. I know. There we go. Option okay, A and option B. Exactly. On, on the one, one hand, hand. Yeah, there we go. Mock on. 30% upside or 30% downside? What is the more likely scenario? I think the more likely scenario would be 30% upside. 30% upside. So the fearless forecast, not so fearless after all. You said oh. minus 30 versus <laughs> positive 30. Those are my options. Very binary outcome. When you look at the U.S. economy, clearly it's slowing, but there's still very strong pockets of growth. One being the consumer, although there are some, there is some weakening, but generally they're very resilient. It's two thirds of your economy. I think it's an election year. President Trump wants the last thing that he wants. The thing he will campaign on is the economy. The last thing he wants is a deterioration in it. Uh, there's still money on the sidelines as well. It's not like, yeah, markets are all-time highs, but it's the broad-based participation when you look at volumes hasn't been the case. So to get that minus 30, you would have to see a recession, and I just don't see it globally. I think what happens is they'll come up with some, some wishy-washy resolution, but they might pare back some of those tariffs, specifically on the consumer, and that could be very positive. So uh, if I had to take one or the other, I would say plus 30. Yeah, I think I would have to lean the same way. If, it, if we're only talking Who's your 2020, of course you are. <laughs> uh, well, that's mine anyway, right? If we're only talking 2020, I would say you know the the probabilities are slightly better on the 30% upside. Again, that's not my base case. I actually think that's a very small probability. As I think it's a small probability, we would be down 30%. However, yeah, let's just play this one out. If we're looking into 2021, and uh, you know what what. Do you think there if I'm looking into the first half of 2021? Well, now all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, maybe it is 30 percent downside. The only reason I say that is while we don't see a risk of recession in the immediate six to 12 months, you do see some of the cracks. And this is what you know, maybe the market isn't fully appreciating. One of those cracks is the yield curve. Now, you know, we know the yield curve did not invert as it typically does in advance of a recession. That would be the 10 year minus the two year um, is uh, inverted for a period of three months. But if you look at what the 10 year to three month did, it did invert. It did invert over three months. And now the re-steepening of that yield curve is very typical of what we see in advance of a recession. People would argue, well, yes, but the Fed has engineered a soft landing as they did in 95 and 98. But in 95 and 98, the 10-3 spread was not inverted. This time, yeah, it is, which we, if you only look at that, it looks very typical of what we've seen in the past. However, that doesn't mean immediate 6 to 12 months. I think this could be like 06, and it could be a little bit longer dated. Yeah, because you're right in terms of the yield curve. But other signs are typical signs of a recession, whether it's the leading economic indicators, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, they're trending towards that, like slowdown, but they haven't hit that recessionary period yet. But I think your estimates for 2021 is very dependent on the U.S. election and the outcome of it. So if you get a Democratic president and specifically an Elizabeth Warren, yeah. Then it's a fantastic market, as we heard during Kevin's <laughs> What You Need to Know. Uh, you could see a sell-off of 
20 to 30 percent why you know i i'm gonna i'm gonna walk that back because we were saying the same thing with the 2016 election people were saying the exact same thing and we got the exact opposite i think it is far too early to to suggest one way or the other but one we all had our people had various views towards at that point president potential donald trump but generally he was viewed as being positive for business and positive for the markets Elizabeth Warren, given the policy she's put into place, has a view of she would, and as some would might say around this table, she's a socialist, would generally be negative, not maybe for the economy, but definitely for big corporate America. Well, let's That's take a that big one. Difference. We'll put that one off the table. Again, this is not a political show. It's a market show. So um, back to it. That's my fearless forecast. I would say the upside risk, the tail risk is 30% upside to the <clears throat> markets next year. Not our base case, but if I have to, you know, really hang it out there, I'm saying, you know, yeah, I can make a probable case for that to occur. Other fearless forecast. Okay, so my fearless forecast is that we won't get one correction next year, but we will get two. And the reason that's fearless is because historically we get one 10% pullback every couple of years. We didn't get one this year. So history would suggest that we'll get one one or we'll get one next year. And then I'm going to go on the edge and say, we'll get two. And a couple of reasons for that. A lot of it, I think there'll be volatility. So this year generally has been, it's been a pretty smooth year. Volatility has been pretty low. Uh, I think that will flip on its head next year for a couple of reasons. One, and this is probably the most reasonable one is I think markets today are priced for perfection. Where we are today, they're pricing in as if earnings are growing in the teens, valuations are attractive, uh, the global economy isn't at where it is today from a growth perspective. So all it takes is a little change in any one of those narratives and then markets pull back. But I also think there'll be a lot more volatility surrounding the elections. And as you see the Democratic nominee process go from February to June, and we all know the polls, they fluctuate on a week-to-week, month-to-month basis. And depending on who's in the lead, whether it's uh, Joe Biden or Elizabeth Warren, I think that will lead to volatility. And then come to the election, depending on who the Democrats put forward and with President Trump, I think that will add on to a lot of volatility. There could be an initial agreement between China and the U.S., but then it's the flushing out of, okay, what was that agreement? Is it actually having an impact on the broader economy? And that could add to volatility. So all this is together, I think next year is going to be a pretty volatile year. Great for active managers, good for asset allocators, not the greatest for passive ETFs. Uh, that's my fearless forecast. So it sounds to me, if I, if I heard you correctly, you're saying we got a correction in the second quarter and a correction in the fourth quarter. I'm not, you know me and timing. I hate timing. I know, but I'm just I'm trying to nail you down here. We got like because if it, they both happen in one quarter, well, that's not that's one correction, not two. So I'm gonna say that's a bear market. Sec- exactly. So second quarter. Not if you re- you regain it back. Like if you go down ten, you regain it, and then you sell off again. That's two corrections. So a W-shaped market between the second and fourth you're quarter. You're just trying to push your black voodoo magic of technical that, analysis that on that me. That that's what you're doing. <laughs> that's exactly. That would be a uh, that would be a reverse head and shoulders. The shampoo? Yes, so exactly. What, yes. <laughs> That's a really bad joke. It is a terrible joke. We're going to have to edit that one out. So, <laughs> um, but no, I th- I'm glad you said that as opposed to I think there's a correction coming because you have a 66% probability of yeah, getting that sure. as you get a correction in two out of every three years. So that's not a big deal. But two, yeah, you know what? A double dip correction, that would be, that would be interesting. 
you know, and um, I'm sure I'm sure the advisors would love that. Give it all the phone call risk that would happen. During well, that you know, OK, well, I, I sit there and I go, eh, I can actually see that entirely. And, and I would say based on our model portfolio, that actually would fit quite well, given that we're a little bit more conservative in terms of our asset allocation. You know, be a little bit more conservative in, in this environment of uncertainty. The markets look like everything is great, but that's not being confirmed or the equity markets look like everything is great. That's not necessarily being confirmed by the bond markets. Um, the high yield spreads haven't really tightened into their year to date tights. And the 10 year yield is still well below, well, not well below, but it's, it's still below 2% off 100 basis points from where it was at the beginning of the year. So we do have this difference of opinion between the equity markets and the bond markets. Kevin. No, I think we, what's surprising as well is uh, you know, this year we've actually seen a couple of spikes in the VIX volatility index uh, above 20 but you haven't seen the markets necessarily react to the downside that you might typically see when you get these short-term spikes. Now, of course, they're very short-term. The VIX has not stayed above 20 for very long, um, but we've had, a, a, I believe, uh, two spikes above 20 um, and one that got near 20 in, uh, in May of this year. Uh, but you haven't seen the market sell off, and, and perhaps you need that sustained volatility, which we haven't received before we get that sell-off. And we know that the average... Uh, downside uh, for the peak to trough in the markets in any given calendar year is 14%, uh, roughly. So, uh, you know, two 10% pullbacks or corrections, yeah, I'd say it's more more uh, uh, probable than uh, Philip's 30% upside, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, well, we're throwing down here. All right, well, last fearless forecast, Kevin. Do you have one? Uh, I'm going to throw it to uh, the Canadian dollar, currency. Uh, you know, we're hovering around 76 cents or so. Um, we've had some upside pressure in the Canadian dollar. My fearless forecast is it drops to 70 cents or below um, next year. And I, it's predicated on the fact that the Canadian economy has so far withstood uh, this global economic slowdown. They've been very resilient. Um, and perhaps that as the Fed uh, starts to move to the sidelines of rate cuts, the Bank of Canada starts to cut rates. Um, and we get a, a much wider uh, two-year differential between the U.S. and Canada. Um, and it drives the Canadian dollar much lower and hits uh, 70 cents. 70 cents is a fearless forecast. That's aggressive. Would, yeah, I'm not sure I would go that low, but I, I uh, certainly lower. And my fearless forecast will support your fearless forecast. My fearless forecast is we do see a recession in Canada in, uh, in 2020. Now, here's my argument. I thought we were very, very close to one between the fourth quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019, where GDP growth was barely above zero on a uh, annualized basis for each of those quarters. The second quarter was largely skewed by oil prices and oil exports, which isn't um, enjoyed or embraced by the rest of the country. And I think in 2020, we're finally going to see that real estate correction, that deeper real estate correction that I have been predicting for the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. And, and uh, well, you know, it's interesting. We've started to see it on the top end. If you look at, you know, in Toronto and Vancouver, for example, uh, homes listings uh, over 2 million uh, have been revised lower or, or you know, knocked down. You know, prices are down on the upper end by 20 to 30%. They're sitting on the market a lot longer. And I think we're just getting to that point where we're hitting capacity. Now, again, I've been saying this for 10 years, been wrong for 10 years. That doesn't mean if, if uh, I'm right next year that I'm vindicated. No, it means I've been wrong for 10 years and then lucky for one. However, that said, yeah, you know what? I think this is something that that is... Uh, 
I don't even know if it, how fearless it is other than, you know, the fact that it had been so wrong for so long. Um, but I think there's a limit to how much debt the average Canadian can take on um, before we hit that tipping point and we have to start paying that back. That's going to come out of consumption. And uh, we're already seeing, you know, a, a weaker consumption environment. Um, and we've somehow managed to stave off a weaker overall economic environment relative to what the global trade environment would, would otherwise suggest. I think it all comes to a head next year. So there's holes in yours, Kev. So first, of course there's holes in it. It's a fearless <laughs> forecast. You drive a truck through the holes in our fearless forecast. But last time that happened, like let's say Canadian dollar lower than 70 cents, you need two factors. You need uh, interest rate policy divergence that's not being appreciated by the market, which you're saying is likely to happen. But last time it happened, oil also What if you off. combine that with a uh, U.S. recession, which was also part of my fearless forecast, and then you get a flight to quality U.S. dollar rallies, um, and therefore you get a uh, additional downside pressure to the Canadian dollar. But if you think that Prime Minister Trudeau will continue his same policies, then that should be negative for WCS. Or positive? I guess you would say negative. So it would work that way, actually. I think there's holes in my argument, actually. <laughs> now that I think about it in my head. I take well, that back. We're going to have to edit that whole part out. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> Phil, back to, you, back to yours in terms of the, the uh, housing correction. You know, I think we've been expecting some kind of, of turn some, at some point. And we, we, I think we've seen a decent turn already in prices, but they're still well above where they were five, seven years ago. Um, I think the, the key is a prolonged recession and a jobs uh, uh, major jobs uh, losses, uh, creating a forced selling, not just uh, amongst uh, you know speculators, but people realizing they can no longer afford a house, even at lower interest rates, uh, as we haven't seen the, the increases in interest rates that we expected. I think that it's all about jobs, and if we see more, more jobs uh, being lost, eventually uh, people can't afford their homes, and you get a, a, a supply imbalance, which creates a, a marked uh, decrease in home prices. And I would say it's largely tied because the loss in jobs can come from the, the rolling over of the construction of new builds. And uh, basically, it's the early 90s all over again. Early 90s, I worked construction uh, on, on my way through school, and I did. I did. I was one of the grunts that cleaned up after all the other trades. And, um, yeah, the, one summer, it was great, lots of business. It was fantastic, making good money. Next summer, there was nothing going on. I remember, you know, calling the calling my boss and saying, all right, I can start here. And he's like, there's nothing. I said, what do you mean? No, no, no. I, like, because we were being paid a lot less. And nothing went on and nothing went on for a couple of years. And it, it, that's, that's kind of my worst case scenario. But I think it's also a uh, plausible, you know, maybe not in 2020, but that's the fearless forecast that I'm throwing out there. So here's where you can put it all together saying, how do I get or how do I reconcile the, the S&P 500 hitting 4,000? With Canada in a recession, well, Canada is going through its housing adjustment correction, whatever you want, but that doesn't just impact housing prices. It impacts housing activity, which has been one of the significant drivers of employment in, and GDP growth in this country for a number of years. You take that away and you get that uh, worst case scenario. Could you see both happening at the same time? Oh, absolutely. And that would lend uh, itself to your fearless forecast of strengthen the U.S., strengthen the U.S. dollar, weakness in the Canadian market, driving that Canadian dollar a lot lower. Much lower. Makan's in awe. Yeah, I'm just very skeptical. And oh, this surprise, is surprise. This is coming from the guy that has been, just like you, calling a housing correction. 
I think you are right in a certain degree. I think you would need a like even when you look at Toronto. Toronto's economy has changed dramatically. Yeah, it, there's obviously real estate investments, but look at the amount of technology jobs that have started here. When you look outside of Silicon Valley, Toronto has added the most amount of technology jobs in the world. So our, I think our Toronto economy is much more broad-based than what we have assumed, me and you and Kev, over the past couple of years. But, there's no, but there are the negative signs. Like there is a Veritas, and don't quote me on these numbers, but Verit- Veritas came out and they said essentially that I think it's like half of condos or half to 60% of condos are investment properties. And of those investment properties, basically a quarter of them are making a bit of money. Uh, 50% of them are basically neutral and then 25% are losing money. So, and then all the new builds that are coming on stream that highlight the addition or contribution of uh, real estate to the broader economy, they're all investment properties. So if I'm that marginal investor, and I'm not going to make money on it, and house prices are, let's say, stall at the very least, then I'm probably not as likely to buy uh, that investment property and what impact that does that have. I think it's really hard to gauge what impact it has broad base. but all I know is when you look at history and you look at economies that have seen massive amount of increase in whether it's corporate leverage or personal leverage, there is always a day of reckoning. Uh, I think what this has shown is the timing is very hard to get, whether it's 5 or 10 but I don't think Canada is going to be shielded from this relative to every other economy in the world. I guess it's a matter of timing. At some point, you have to pay the debt back. And that's going to be the day of reckoning, in, in my mind. Um, and maybe not a disaster. Wah, wah, but, such a, hey. Debbie Downer ending. To uh, well, no, no, I'm going to go back. And so that's why I think that you, know, that you can offset that with uh, some uh, you know, uh, tail risk in the United States with some phenomenal potential gains of 30%. Again, very low probability. Um, but if I had to bet one way or the other, yeah, I think there's a little bit more of a skew to the upside as opposed to the downside. How much? I'm talking in the single digit percentage range. Can we end it off with crazy sports predictions for 2020? I think it's a great way to end it off. So let's, let's start that. Kevin, do you, what's your crazy sports prediction for 2020? Your fearless forecast for sports. It's not so crazy. The Montreal Canadiens win the Stanley Cup. Come on. Of course it is. You're a 49ers fan, so... And the Niners are undefeated right now. I'm living a great life right now in sports right now. So, uh, yeah, Niners are undefeated, and uh, maybe they go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> maybe they, they win they the will. Super- <laughs> if they get the Super Bowl, they better win, because the last two times I watched, they lost, and they better win this time. You want to go first, or want me to go? Oh, I've got, I was going to say, I've got one for football. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my Bills. I mean, they're playing really well, and, and they're overachieving, but I think they continue to overachieve through the playoffs and make it to the Super Bowl. They don't win, but they make it. I thought for, the fearless for forecast fifth was... Year. <laughs> for, for fifth year. For fifth time, sorry. Time. I thought wow. the fearless forecast was them making the playoffs. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going all the way. I think they make the playoffs. That, that's done. Mine is, I think the Raptors will make the NBA Finals. I think they'll go through... This year? Three rounds. Well, it's 2020. It's the Finals, right? I think people are underestimating how good they are. I think they'll get to the playoffs. And then their season team, I think Pascal Siakam will continue to go on this crazy trajectory. OG will be back in terms of defense. And I think we'll be in the finals. Now, who do they play? Because Golden State is out of it. Let's I think it'll be the Clippers. Like, as much as I hate saying this, they look really good. Clippers or the Lakers? It's going to be a team from L.A. I don't know if that's a fearless forecast. Probably not. Not in the West, that's for sure. But the East... Uh... If you're willing to put money on that, I will take the opposite side of that. I'm not willing to put money on that. <laughs> I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to throw one on then uh, in terms of um, 
oh, fearless forecast for 2020. All right, fine. We'll, we'll say, uh, uh, oh, geez, I want to say the Jays are, are becoming much more competitive. I like that young team, but that just seems, you know, so, so hometown biased <laughs> that it, it's not even worth it at this point. Um, you know what I'm, I'm going to do? I'm going to say the Braves. I think the Braves are going to go all the way next year. Could be possible. They're a very good team. Yeah. I, yeah it's not that fearless, but I'm going to say the Braves go all the way. With that, we're going to close it <laughs> off. That's it. That's the end of it. I've, I've uh, drawn a speechless crowd here. So I think um, if anything, I, I don't know, I'd have to sit there and say the lessons are these are really fun to talk about. It's really interesting. But most importantly, as we went along this exercise, it was always like, um, you know, what is the plausibility? Or rather, these things are, are plausible but not probable. You know, the probability of these things coming to fruition, these predictions actually being realized over the course of the next 12 months is low based on the information that we have. Now, forecasting is very, very difficult to, to get right with as an exact science. Um, and what we try and do is rather focus on the trend. And I think the trend that we've laid out here is that, you know, 2020 is going to be positive year. I think we can rule out recession. We could perhaps rule out blowout markets and we're just going to muddle through, but that doesn't mean that we don't make money. You make money, but be aware. You know, we would say the the higher probability event, you know, is uh, or, or lends itself to being a little bit more cautious in 2020. A lot of things going on. We've got an election in the United States. We have some type of resolution to trade positively or negatively or no resolution at all. And there's consequences to that. We have valuation in the market. We have uncertainty around earnings growth. We have all these things that are in front of us. There's always uncertainty in the market. So let's attach probabilities to it. So what we talked about today, I wouldn't be taking to the bank. I would keep in the back of my head and look for the direction or the trend to guide the way. I think it's a really good exercise. I know myself just listening to all of this over the past hour was, well, what if one of these fearless forecasts is right? Well, how will our model portfolio, the asset allocation, do in that type of environment? And I hope as we went through these forecasts that you're looking at your own asset allocation for your clients and saying, in the event that one of these were to happen, what does that do for your clients? Like these fearless forecasts, you never anticipate them. No one anticipated a near bear market last quarter, but we got one. Well, how did the asset allocation do in that period? So it's just being aware of the potential tail risks and then how your portfolio or your asset allocation would do in that type of environment. Yeah, I think the key here is also to, to make sure we're not, you know, we're, we've are we been speculating this whole podcast and, and you can speculate and sit around a table and, and throw out all kinds of things you want to. But the key is look at the fundamentals, look at the trend and fundamentals, and they will guide the way. They, you know, use them and they will typically tell you in advance of where things are going and at least the probability of where things are going. Um, and to follow those tangible fundamentals will really help uh, let you survive or thrive in either a down or an up market. And with that, this has been Philip Peterson, Makan Nia, and Kevin Headland. Thank with you. With Investments Unplugged. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. 
Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede Know Your Client Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.